Turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. This week we begin a new chapter of God's Word uh, in the book of Romans and a new section, really, of the book of Romans. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are unbelievable chapters in the Word of God that deal with God's chosen people. And throughout church history, people have mistreated and misunderstood the portion of Scripture we're about to begin looking at over the next several weeks. Uh, Quite frankly, some people choose to just ignore it, like as if just make like it never was. They literally ignore it as if it just wasn't there. Others treat it as parenthetical. So they view chapters 9, 10, and 11 as if they're just this big, big, big parentheses, right? It's all between parentheses. And they say, but in reality, what you really need to know uh, from the word of God, as far as the book of Romans is concerned, goes right from the end of Romans 8 and picks up right in Romans 12. In fact, if you did remove Romans 9 through 11 from your Bible, the letter would flow rather seamlessly. You would end in Romans 8 by saying, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, Jesus our Lord. And then Romans 12, 1, you'd pick up and say, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I mean, it would, it would flow rather seamlessly. And people do this um, and they believe that Paul was just really sharing what was on his heart for the Jews. And it's really not important that we really uh, go there. Especially because it fits just fine, if you look from Romans 8 to Romans 12. However, uh, just because something fits doesn't mean it belongs in your wardrobe. So just because the end of Romans 8 fits nicely with the beginning of Romans 12, that doesn't mean they belong together. And just in general, just you may want to take this down, it's not in your outline, but in general, it's a bad habit, a bad idea to just, you know, decide you want to remove three entire chapters of God-breathed, canonized scripture, like just because, like don't. Don't, don't do that. If you're tempted to do that, I want to encourage you not to do that. So we're not going to do that today or in the weeks to come. I want to invite you not to hold back from what could be hard truth. I want to invite you not to hold back from what could be interpreted and what is difficult truth. And I want you also to know that God speaks to us what he would want us to hear. He writes to us what he would want us to read. Oftentimes when it comes to the subject of election or the doctrines of God's sovereign grace, I find that a lot of people get uncomfortable with it. And they're like, well, uh, it's, all a, it's all a mystery-ish, right? It's a mystery. I mean, there certainly is a level of mystery. But just like it's wrong for someone to claim that they know everything when God hasn't revealed everything, I also think we do some injustice to the scriptures if we claim something's mysterious that God has revealed in his scriptures. So there is a certain level of mystery, but don't hold back from understanding or from wanting to explore the deeper and sometimes the more difficult truths of God's word. That's mystery because God's revealed it to us for a reason. There's something he wants us to know. There's a way he wants us to grow. So I want to invite you to lean in. Don't hold back. Don't, don't, don't have this posture, but lean in. Just trust Not me, but trust the word of God and lean in to the truth of God's word. Now, I want you to look at Romans 9, verse 11, right off the bat. We'll get to the other verses as well, Lord willing. But I want you to look at Romans 9, verse 11, right off the bat, just by a big sermon illustration that you're all going to participate with me in right now. Look at Romans 9, verse 11, and all I want you to do is this. I want you to raise your hand if contained within that verse you see the word election. That's all I want you to do. Just raise your hand if within that verse you see the word election or choosing or chooses or chosen. Keep it up. Chooses or chosen. Right. Okay. You can put your hands down. 
Some people say, I don't believe in election. I don't think it's biblical. I feel like we just proved that wrong, right? Like, like, like we all looked at our Bibles and we realized the, the, the word is in there. So I don't believe in election. I don't think it's biblical. Well, let's not, let's not say that because it is within our Bibles. And this isn't deep theology. This is common sense. I mean, it's, it's in the Bible. We know that we see it in the Bible. And it's not just there. You can read it in... Romans eleven twenty eight and 2 Peter 1 and verse 10 as well. And that's just the English word election or choosing, depending on the, the uh, translation that you're using. The Greek word is found in what we read today and also in Acts 9, 15 and Romans eleven five 5 and Romans eleven seven 7 and 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4. You can't say something isn't biblical that's found in the Bible. Like, like you, you can't. Oftentimes what I find is as I've spoken with people, I don't believe in election. I don't think it's biblical. What they mean is, they do believe in election, they just differ on who does the electing. I don't believe in election. Most people, when they say that, at least in my experience, they do believe in election. They just believe that someone else does the electing and it's not God. They believe it's themselves. Usually, when people say, I don't believe in election, that's usually the posture, the position that they're taking. Um, the issue is not whether election is biblical, because it is. We all just, it's in your Bible. It's, and I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. So it's, it's, it's in your Bible, it's there, it is biblical. But the rub is not, is it in there? The rub is, who does the electing? And on one side of the picture, you have, you know, God and Satan standing before this big voting booth, and they both put a vote in for your soul, and it's a tie, it's a tie and they're both like, Biting their nails, waiting to see the deciding, tie-breaking vote that you will cast. And they're, oh, I really hope it's me because I want him to go to heaven. And say, oh, I really hope it's me. I want him to burn forever. And then all of a sudden, you cast that vote and there's great rejoicing on one side and great sorrow on the other side. They were, you do the electing. You cast that tie-breaking vote. Then on the other side, in a similar yet very different picture, uh, we see uh, perhaps the picture, for example, perhaps you've seen it. Uh, where it's, behold, Jesus, I stand, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. It's taken out of a verse. It's not meant to be evangelistic necessarily. But anyway, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking. And there's a person on the other side of the door. And they seem to be contemplating, should I let Jesus in? And Jesus can't come in because far be it for Jesus to you know, break and enter. So he's, he's waiting for you to let him in. The doorknob's only on your side of, of the door. So he's waiting. Um, but what's not pictured there right, is the Holy Spirit, which is not afraid to do break and entering, who sneaks in through a window in the back and bashes it in and comes running through the house and comes right up to your back and goes, open that door now. And you go, okay, uh, yes, I will. And then Jesus comes into your heart. Now that's, that would be the other side, the other side of welcoming Jesus into your heart, because quite frankly, the Holy Spirit has done a work in your life and you found his grace to be simply irresistible. Now you can't read your Bible. You can't read your Bible and say election or choosing isn't in there, because it is. So we just need to clear that up and dispel that myth right from the get-go. Now, here's what we need to do. You know what we need to do right now? We need to stop. Because this attitude, this uh, very glib attitude, very cold, very, <laughs> well, it's common sense, but how do you do this? This attitude is oftentimes the way election is spoken about. Oftentimes it's spoken about by somebody who is in the uh, 
what I like to call and what others have called cage stage Calvinism. And they have become aware of the truths of God's word and they're excited about it and they have zeal, but it's not been tempered by time or wisdom. And this attitude of looking at a life, well, here's, here's what it is. The Bible says this. And if you believe it, you either believe your Bible or you don't. This is just the way it is. You believe what the Bible says or you don't. It's up to you. It's in your Bible. Let me ask you this question. Is there anything in the world more inconsistent than someone who is so arrogant about the fact that he did nothing to earn his salvation? Like, mind blown. Like, is there anything more inconsistent? Guess what? I realize I didn't do anything on my own. I feel like there's still a little part of that person, and I've been that person. I feel like there's still a little part of that person who thinks, guess what? I came to a knowledge of God's saving, of God's saving sovereign grace in my life. And it's so cool that I did that. It's like a little part. They've moved from it's all about me to it's mostly about God. But still, I'm still a little, a little awesome because I now know this. So God is more awesome, and I'm, but I'm maybe not second, but I'm kind of up there because I get it. You know, or the woman who's so biblically astute, so doctrinally sound that she knows her salvation isn't of her own works, not earned on her own, but as a result of the sovereign, electing, loving grace of God that she turns up her nose at others who are lost. It's up to God to save them. Or, or others who are saved but don't have the same level of understanding she does. How many of you have ex- either been that or in some way, shape, or form experienced that when it comes to this issue? Truth is important. Never shy away from the truth. Never hide it. Never punt on truth. You know what's also important that we need to look at is as we read through the word of God, truth and tone. Truth and tone. And it concerns me that oftentimes in my own life and in the lives of other people who believe in the doctrines of grace because they see it in God's word, that as much as we love the word of God, we start Romans 9 and verse 6, yet skip verses 1 through 5. I confess to you that I know more off the top of my head from Romans 9 and verse 6 and following and don't know as much about the first five verses when there is a very different tone that is set by the apostle Paul. And I was convicted of that as I prepared earlier this week. What about you? What's your tone when it comes to these things? Because I heard it said like this once, and I would put this out to you. If you're wrong in the way that you're right, you're wrong even though you're right. That's really helpful. If you're wrong in the way that you're right, you're wrong even though you're right. The, 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 the content of what you've said might be just perfect. But if this gets in the way, right? Just this, this, this. You become more of a stumbling block than a stepping stone. A stumbling block from truth than you are a stepping stone to truth. 
I want us to lean into the truth of God's word, but I also want us to lean into the tone. And I want us to look at the word of God and see Paul coming out of Romans 8. Look at that. Celebrating the fact that nothing can separate him from the love of Christ, right? Celebrating the fact. Nothing can separate me. Like, that's a glorious, glorious thing. And verse 38 says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers. Sorry, Romans 8, 38. Nor, nor death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor high. And you could just see him just smiling and writing and rejoicing. And this is good. This is great. I love this. Nothing, nothing will, nor anything else in all creation. Oh, this is so good. Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Boom. Pen down. He's just thrilled with that. Because what Christian wouldn't be thrilled with that concept, right? Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Not even, and, nor any other created thing. Like, not even me. I'm created. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And he's thrilled, and it's awesome, and it's, it, it, it's life-changing, mind-blowing, life-altering truth. But he can't help but think of those who don't love the Lord and cannot partake of this truth. Then he comes to Romans 9 and there's a very different tone because as he's happy, right, as he's rejoicing, as he's celebrating the truth and nothing can separate him, this is great. He can't help but have just a little bit of a slideshow go before his mind's eye of people who don't know that love. And there's a very different tone in Romans 9, verse 1. He says, now, listen, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. Now, lest there be any confusion, he was not lying up to that point, right? So he's just saying, I'm, I'm speaking, listen, I want you to understand. What I'm about to tell you from the bottom, I'm speaking the truth. Listen, what I'm about to tell you, take very seriously. All right, Paul, I'm listening. I am not lying. I appreciate that, Paul. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul, you've called upon two members of the Trinity. What in, why do you, this must be really serious. Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It's this backdrop, friends, that election is presented. This is the context. It's Paul looking out in his mind's eye upon people, I'm, I believe, that both he knows and doesn't know, right? Just like there's lost people that you know and there's lost people that you don't know. And he's thinking, man, I, 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 I got to tell you this. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So much so that I wish that I could, that, that it, I, I could wish, this is how, how sad I am. I could wish that I myself were cut off from Christ so that they might be saved. Now, Paul knows that that would accomplish nothing, right? But he's not speaking theologically here. Do you know what he's speaking? Very emotionally. Very emotionally. Here's how sad I am. I would literally cut myself off from Christ if I knew it could help them. Do you have a great sorrow in your heart for those who are lost? 
Um, the lost frustrate me sometimes. O- oftentimes. They act so lost. And they just, it's like, man, you don't know up from down, left from right. You don't know if you're coming or going. You make this decision. You say it's good, but it's bad. You say that which is bad is good. All of which scripture says. They're, they're filling, they're, 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 they're playing their part perfectly. But so far, oh, this world's going to hell in a handbasket. I can't believe it. Blah, 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 blah. They're so lost. They're so lost. They're so lost. They're so lost. Do you hear Paul saying, they're so lost. So lost. My stupid Jewish friends, they're so lost. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish. What is your attitude, your tone, your emotion when it comes to those that are lost? Those that are lost that you know. What face comes to your, that face, the face that just came to your mind, the name that comes to your mind, the person that's on your heart. Maybe the person that used to be on your heart a lot, but you've given up on because, I mean, it's been so long. That child, that spouse, that friend, that coworker. But then there's also just in general, just the general, Paul is grieved because of his kinsmen according to the flesh. He's, I'm sure he's thinking about specific Jews that he knew, grew up with, knows then. But then just in general, just like, oh, my people, my people. I can remember sitting on a subway train or standing in one of these and thinking, it's entirely possible that I'm the only one on this train going to heaven. Statistically probable, to be honest with you. You ever sit at a red light? Just look around. Every other car is being manned, operated by, some, by someone who will spend eternity somewhere. The passenger, not driving, sitting there. The kid in the back. The driver in the front. They, they, they will spend eternity somewhere. Everybody has that in common. Everybody will spend eternity somewhere. As you sit in your office at work, as you go to school, whenever you're just in a crowd of people that's not a crowd of people who claim to love God, every single person will, not might, will spend eternity somewhere at some point. It is inevitable. The death rate remains the same, one apiece. Everybody will spend eternity Somewhere, what does that do to your heart? When Paul thinks about it, he says that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Do you know why? He has empathy. He has empathy. You say sympathy? No, I said empathy. The same thing. No, not the same thing. They're very, very similar. It's compassion coming out of us uh, really from two different Two different backgrounds. Sympathy uh, is, uh, comes from a, a Greek word that's uh, sum, pathos. Sum is with, pathos is feeling. We get sympathia, we get the word sympathy. With feeling, with feeling. I relate to this person with feeling. My, that must be hard. My, how you suffer. I was just talking to somebody before and praying with them and, and praying with them about something that I cannot personally relate to, but oh, it sounds very difficult. I've never been through that, but it sounds very difficult. I have sympathy. Empathy, okay, Greek word em, in, pathos, feeling, 
infeeling, empathia, where we get the word empathy, infeeling. That's, I've, I've been in that feeling. Like that feeling you have right now, I've been there. That's empathy. Empathy comes because I've had similar experience. That's how I remember it. E, empathy, E, experience. Sympathy is, ooh, that just sounds very difficult. My, my heart is heavy, but I can't, I've never been through it, but my heart's heavy for you. Empathy is, uh, yeah, been there, done that. That was really hard. Who here can't empathize with a lost person? Paul's not concerned about his ministry going well. Paul's not concerned about whether or not churches will grow. Paul thinks back to the road to Damascus. Paul remembers being saved. Paul remembers he could be thinking of people that he used to persecute Christians with that are now against him. And he thinks back upon God's sovereign, loving grace at work in his life. And he says, oh, I remember when I was saved, it was nothing of myself. I wish I want that to happen for for other people. I know how lost they are. Do you empathize with the lost. It's when you remember that you too were once lost. Even if you, if you were, like, some people say they were saved, like, in utero or at two. You, you were saved really young. That's, that's fine. You still know enough of your Bible to know, I was once lost. I was once bound for hell. And God has saved me. Do you not feel badly for someone else who is like you, who doesn't know that there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun? Because Paul does. And evangelists, quite frankly, are most effective if they have a love for the lost they seek to reach. And we don't see this just from Paul. Look at Psalm 119.36 in your outline. The psalmist says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Now, I'm probably with the vast majority of you, I assume. I'm right is right, left is wrong in many areas of life. But I can't be so motivated by my uh, morals or my political standing or anything like that that I look at, oh, stupid lost people. They're just dumb. They're idiots. The psalmist says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Looks out upon the, 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 the people and say, people don't keep your law. This saddens me. My eyes shed tears. Uh, Jeremiah 13, verses 15 and following He says, hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness. Before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. So he's not shying away from truth. But look at the tone. Look at verse 17. But if you will not listen, to hell with you. He doesn't say that. He says, if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. There's a heart for people who are suffering from ignorance, who are not obeying the word of God. And then who to be a better example of this than Jesus Christ? Jesus who knows all things, right? Jesus who knows who will come to him, who will not come to him, who will love him, who will hate him, looks out upon Jerusalem, right? As we read about in Matthew 23, looks out upon Jerusalem, beginning in verse 37, Matthew 23. Oh, Jerusalem, this Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. I can't wait to come back and burn it. He doesn't say that. He says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing Oh, how I would love to 
gather you in. Oh, how I would love to care for you. I love you. You're not willing. Jesus had compassion upon people. And I just want to know, do you, does that resonate with you? When you read Romans 9, 1 through 6, does that, Romans through 5, does that resonate with you? My kinsmen according to the flesh at the end of verse 3. My fellow Jews. What about your fellow Americans? Your fellow Kentuckians. Your fellow Ohioans. Your fellow people who live in Indiana. I don't know what you say. What, Indianians? I don't know. No, they're ridiculous. Stupid liberals. Eh, I I don't care about them. My kinsmen according to the flesh. Verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Saying, of all people who should love Jesus, these people should love Jesus. I mean, look at all that they have going for them. Adoption, glory, covenants. God gave them his law. All the pictures of Christ that were leading up to Christ. They have. Verse 5, the patriarchs are from their race. God himself, Christ himself, is from their race. And he has unceasing anguish. What about you? Who's the person in your life who you think, man, this person, (laughs) if anyone should love Jesus, it's, and you fill in the blank. Maybe it's a child of yours. The times we spent in the word, the times we spoke about the gospel, the devotions we had, the times we spent in prayer. This person would have to run further out of their way than just to sit right there, it would seem, to be saved. And you say, but they're not willing. That family member that you've been talking to or have spoken to or shared your faith with, you say, man, this person's just like, they're right. You ever say that? They're right there. They're so close, but seems so far. Do you empathize with the lost, having been lost at one point yourselves? That's the tone that Paul moves into then speaking about election. There is no pride there. There's deep sorrow and anguish, concern for the lost. So much emotion. Does that resonate with you? Or are you just sick and tired of it all and just waiting to get to heaven? So here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to pause. And I want to pray. But first, I'd like to just pray silently and give you an opportunity to close your eyes if you, if you would feel so led and to picture that person or persons who comes to your mind when you think of who you wish would be saved. And let's just take a moment to silently pray for them together. And it's the good news. God's not going to be confused by so many people praying. He hears his people. And then I will close us and pray uh, generally. Let's pray at this time.
Father, we come before you as recipients of your grace and mercy with grateful, grateful, grateful hearts. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that we understand the gospel. We who know you love the truth of your word. Yet on our hearts today are the people that we have just named. Our neighbor, uh, our child, our spouses, our friends, our family members. And Lord, we know your word. We know where they are destined to go if they do not bow the knee and worship you in this life. And Lord, we come before you now humbly and for your name's sake, not for ours, for your name's sake, asking you to save them. Asking you to show them mercy and grace, to do a work in their heart that their heart of stone might be replaced with a heart of flesh that is soft to the gospel, open to the gospel, receptive of the truth of God's word. Lord, would you bring about fruit from the seeds that have been planted, cause them to fall on good soil. Oh, God in heaven, we come before you with our hearts aching for those whom we have just named, many of whom we've tried so hard, we've tried so hard to share, hoping that they would respond. And some of whom, Lord, that we have all but given up on because it's just been a while. We're tired. We're tired sheep, fickle sheep. We lose faith easily. Grant us repentance that you might use us to preach truth to them that they might be granted repentance. And Lord, we pray that you would do these things not for our sake, but for your sake. Not about the kingdom of me, but for your kingdom and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So you'd think if these people have all these examples of God's grace listed that are listed there in uh, verses 4 and 5, adoption, glory, covenants, the patriarchs came from them, Jesus came from them, you'd think that they of all people would believe, would understand, would know. So it's, it's, it's kind of natural for Paul to then say, now this, just so you know, the word of God has not failed here, Right? This is not a, a failure on the part of the word of God. This is not a, a, a truth fail. Um, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. The fact that Jews reject Jesus doesn't invalidate God's promises. The, the promises weren't made to the physical descendants of Abraham but to his Spiritual descendants, as we'll see in a moment. But we've covered this in Romans already. I don't know if you'll remember Romans 2 and verse 11. It says God shows no partiality. Nobody gets the get-out-of-jail-free card just because they're from a certain country or a certain tribe or a certain nation or have a certain last name. God shows no partiality. Romans 4 verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So here is Paul writing to the church at Rome, which is filled with people who are Gentiles, right? But saying, Abraham is the father of us all. I don't have an extra leg up because I'm a Jew, Paul says. Abraham is the father of us all because we have a common bond in faith. 
He says it elsewhere in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And if you look at Romans 9, beginning in verse 7, it says they are Israelites. Excuse me, no it doesn't. It says not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. You say, well, what does that mean? That sounds inconsistent. Well, you have to think about it, okay? And we don't have time to go all the way back and look at it in, in Genesis uh, 19 and following or even elsewhere. But if you look at the promise that was made to Abraham, it was made to him and his offspring. But we also see uh, in verse 7 that not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So was Isaac an only child? The answer, he was not, right? Because uh, Abraham, Abraham and Sarah were promised to have a baby even in their old age, to which Sarah laughs, which is never a good idea. Then later on, they get impatient, and Sarah says, I have an idea. It's a wacky idea, right? Like, really, hey, it's probably not going to happen here with me, so why don't you go out and get with her, and you can have a baby with her, and I'll be okay with that. Because that will bring about, like, these people put the fun in dysfunctional, right? I mean, so every time you look at your family, you think, we are messed up. Just go to Genesis. You're good. You're good. Or at least you're in, you're in good company. But, but, but looks over there and says, okay, and then who's born as a result of that? Ishmael, right? But the promise wasn't made to Ishmael because the promise was that Sarah would have a son. We see that in verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Not someone else through Abraham, but Sarah shall have a son. And that son will be Isaac. Not just because you are born and you have Abraham's blood within you, you're of his bloodline, does that mean you are a child of the promise? But it's people who, God was choosing people from the get-go. That's why he's doing this. He's saying, I've been a choosing God and an electing God and a sovereignly gracious God over my people from day one. This isn't a new plan. I've been choosing people to save, choosing people to love from way back in Genesis. This is not new news. Then look at verse 9. Excuse me, verse 10. And not only so, so it's not only with Abraham and Sarah having Isaac... But also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, so it also, next generation, right? Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, this is before they were born, right? She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've Hated. Now look at all the qualifying. He doesn't just jump to the point there, Paul, right? Look at verse 10. He's saying, but not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, right? You say, well, maybe it happened. Maybe God was upset with Abraham uh, and Sarah because there was, you know, an extramarital thing going on there when Abraham went into Hagar and had, you know, maybe that's it. No, well, verse 10, he says, listen, Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. She said, well, maybe it's because they did something bad. You know, God looked down, the, God, God looked down and knows what they're going to do and knows what they're doing. So they, like, Jacob would be loved and Esau would be hated by God because they were acting bad. You know, maybe one was mean in the womb to the other or something. I don't know. He says, though they were not yet born, verse 11, and had done nothing either good or bad, but for this reason, in order that God's purpose... Whose purpose? God, who, again, whose purpose? God's purpose of election might continue. 
not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, and as it is written, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. Say, why does God do that? Closest I can get you to the answer is verse 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. That doesn't really answer my question. Yeah, I gave it my best shot. God has a purpose in what he does. It's his glory. And he does these things for his own name's sake and for his glory. But see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. So many times as we look at these things, um, our response is one of shock uh, that God, how could God, how could God only do this for some people? When in reality, scripturally, we shouldn't be saying, how come God wouldn't do this for, for, for all? It's so wrong for him to do this, not do this for all. When in reality, we should say, how in the world would God even do this for any? How could God save anyone? That's a, an amazing act of mercy, an amazing act of grace. That God would choose to grant salvation to anyone. That God would choose Jacob over Esau. It's amazing he didn't just hate them both. But he chose to love one. He chose to set his love upon one. And that's what's amazing. And oftentimes, we fall into uh, at least three, I'm sure there are more, but at least three errors when we're speaking about these things. And I'd like to illustrate that for you. And I've asked uh, four young people, uh, so if you are them, four young people to come up to uh, help illustrate something for me. So if that was you, if you were among those who were chosen (laughs) from uh, the foundations of this sermon, like four days ago, please come on up. Yes, come on right up here. Okay. Good. Here, come stand right over here. Okay. Now, understand, here, come right over here. Now, understand, these, these were like, they were voluntold to do this. So, and this is, you're an intimidating crowd. So, would you do me a favor, help me thank them and welcome them to help us out? Good. All right. So just tell us your first name, just so that everybody knows. What's your first name? Leah. Leah. Noel. Noel. Tim. Tim. Jacob. And Jacob. Okay, well, we're really glad that you guys are here. Have you had a good week? Yeah. A lot of snow? What do you do in the snow? What's your favorite? Do you sled? Do you build snowmen? What do you do? Do you have a fight, a snowball fight? What do you, how do you, you build a ramp? To sled off of. To sled off of. Not messing around. What do you do? I just go and play with my friends. You just what? I go and play with my friends. That's awesome. Let him build the ramp and you just go and enjoy it. (laughs) Hey, I heard you built a snowman. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. I saw it on Facebook. It's big. It's really big. I built a snowman and then I saw your snowman and I was pretty let down. What's life like um, for Jacob with the snow? What do you like doing? Mm, I like to have snowball fights. You like to have snowball fights? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you good at making snowballs? Uh, Yeah, kind of. That's cool. That's really cool. It was good. The, the snow yesterday was better snowball snow than the snow earlier this week. Would you yeah. agree? Yeah. Because it was heavier, it was wetter. Good. I'm glad you agree. All right. Well, here's, here's, what, I would like to, here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to give you each, uh, give you each an envelope here, and all I need you to do is open it up. All righty? And there you go. So open the envelope, and then one by one, you're going to share with people uh, what, what is within that envelope. Okay? So... And if you're thinking of like fast or slow, faster would be really better. 
Um, cool. All right. So what do you what do you got there, Jacob? Um, two dollar bills. Two dollar bills. Very good. What do you think you're going to do with all that money? Um, I don't really know what I can do with it. All right. Maybe get some candy. Candy. That's not a bad not a bad idea. Two dollars. How do you feel about the fact that you have two dollars? Um, I don't know. All right. You let me know if you figure it out. All right. <laughs> Tim, what do you got there? Three dollars. You have three dollars. How many do you have? Two. How many do you have? Three. Again? Two. Again? Three. Okay. So, again? Three. Is more than? Two. Yes. Uh, yes, <laughs> two. So, how do you, do you kind of, like, you have two, and that's really cool. Do you wish you had three? A little bit. A little bit, right? I mean, like, <laughs> who among us, like, wouldn't, wouldn't wish that? So, um, all righty. Would, would, you, would you be willing to trade with him? Uh, probably not. Probably not. Right? <laughs> good. It's good. That, that's a good move. All right. So, now, what have you there? Five dollars. You have a five dollar bill. You have five dollar bill. Uh, would you be willing to trade with her? Yeah. Yeah, right? Because that would be, right? Upgrade. Yeah? So, and, and, and it's kind of cool. So you're happy with what you get, but then you look elsewhere and you see somebody else have something a little more. And you're still thankful, but you're like, oh, they have, they have more. And you were happy with what you got because it's more than him and you got it. But then over here, she's like raking in the dough with the Abe Lincoln. And you have three... You know what I mean? And, uh, and Leah, what do you have? I have zero. You have what? Zero. zero. Oh, yeah, that'll, that helps the illustration. Do it. <laughs> oh. Right. oh, wow. How, uh... Wow. Well, anyway, um, <laughs> let me ask you a question. Um... What did you do to, to earn that money? Nothing. What did you say? Nothing. Nothing, right? Absolutely nothing. Isn't it funny how sometimes uh, in situations like this, we can sometimes look around and you can see that someone else has more than you, like you can see that she has more than you, and you might be tempted to say, hey, that's not fair. That's not fair, right? That's not fair. Why would she get more than me? Why would he get more than me? That's not fair. But when in reality, you guys have done nothing to earn it, right? They've done nothing to earn it. So let me ask you a question, Tim. Help me think through this. You've done nothing to do this, to to earn this. Has anybody on this stage been treated fairly? Think about it again. That's right. Leah has been treated fairly. Doesn't that make you feel good that you were treated fairly? Yes. See, that's so, see, I'm good. I'm so glad you were treated fairly. Hey, how would you guys like to be treated fairly? No, not so much. He's like, yeah, that's a major downgrade. No, I don't want to. I don't want to be treated fairly. But there's this sense of, oh, it should. It's got to be equal, right? It's got to be equal. Hey, how much is he? How much is she? Wait a minute. Why did she do this? Hey, wait a minute. If if this person can understand the word of God, how come they can't understand the word? Well, how about how about this? Whose money is that? Um, Yours. It is mine, right? What can I do with my money? What would you say? What can I do with my money? Spend it. I can spend it. Or, or this, even broader, how about what I want? Right? I can do what I, it's my money. I can do what I want with my money. And God says, I'm, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion, right? On whom I will have compassion. He doesn't answer the question, is God unjust? He just says, hey, wait a minute, little reminder, my money, my compassion, 
I'm going to have mercy on whom I'm going to have mercy. I'm going to have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Do you know why? Because it's about my glory, God says, and I do what I want. And I do what seems best to me. And on earth, we have an idea of what, what might be good and what might be bad, or what might be good, what might be better, what might be best. But in reality, here, open that. In reality, um, it's up to God to bless whom he blesses with what. It's up to God to do whatever he thinks to be best for his glory and for his namesake, and he gets to do what he wants. So the fact that one person got two, one person got three, one person got five, and one person got none, it's all okay because it's God who's going to have compassion and God's who's going to have mercy. Okay? What do you have there? A ten. A ten. <laughs> wow. There you go. <laughs> well, there you go. And is, is that okay with you? Do you want the, we can trade. I'll give you the other envelope back. What would you prefer? To keep that or the empty envelope? The empty one. You'd prefer. <laughs> really? Yep. How, how come? I think it's better. Oh. I can't pick such godly kids next time. Um, <laughs> well, listen, I want you guys to know last night, uh, last night I prayed, and I prayed for my sermon, and I prayed with my kids, and. Um, I pray for each and every one of you because you've helped me preach the word today. You have. You've helped me illustrate a truth and show a truth to people that I'm hoping God uses in their hearts. So thank you very, very much for helping me out. You can go back to your seats now. No, you can keep that. Here. Hey, Leah. Here, you know what? Have an empty envelope as well. There you go. I hope that illustration was helpful, um, chiefly because it's expensive. Um, I like it because of what it does to our hearts, right? Our emotions, even as you're watching, right? Sometimes, sometimes with how it works with the people who are on stage, but even as you're watching, you're like, ooh, that's good, that's really cool. Ooh, that's better, I feel bad for him because he didn't get this. Oh, wow, that's even better. Oh, wow, and there's nothing? Well, yeah, I guess that's fair. And see how your mind races and you go back and forth and you tend to think, wait, is this fair, is this good, is it right? I think it's okay, it's good. And that's oftentimes the same way we deal with these things as we read them in the word of God. We wrestle with, uh, I think I've earned that, that's really mine. I'm, I'm, we're entitled to this. How could God give one person this much and one person that much? We're entitled to this. We're his, we're, I mean, we're human beings, he created us in his image and then especially among us in the west especially among us in america we really like equality and that's not a bad thing but equality according to the scriptures says that we are all created in the image of god and romans three twenty three: all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and god's answer to that is Romans 9, verse 5. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Look at verse 16 in Romans 9. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You know why Pharaoh's heart was so hard? Because God made it that way. Do you know why God made it that way? 
Because the harder Pharaoh's heart got, the more he said no to Moses, the more God got to glorify himself in the end. Because then it wasn't a win. It was a big win, right? It was a major win. Wow, God rescued the people from that dictator. Wow, God rescued the people from Pharaoh. Wow, plague after plague after plague. And God glorifies himself all the more because of what he did in the heart of Pharaoh. And God is glorified either way. So verse 18 says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. I want to call our worship team up. And I want to close with encouraging you that a proper application of the doctrine of election shows itself in evangelistic fervor. You say, how could that be? You just told me it's, I feel like it's all about God. Well, Romans 9 doesn't negate what we're going to read in Romans 10. That's in your outline. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he asks a series of questions. How will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? See, I think we read, we read this in the Bible. We read about election and we spend our time doing this. Don't worry about what's on the inside of the envelope. Give out the envelope. Give out the envelope. Not sure. Give out the envelope. God knows what's going on inside the hearts of people. God knows who's ready, who's not. God knows who's, but I don't know. So the only, the only application from the scriptures is for me just to tell all. Right? The only application that I can have from the scriptures to be consistent is I'm going to share with everybody that I have the opportunity to share with. And we'll let God worry about, he's not going to worry, trust me, but we'll let God be uh, in control, because he already is, of who makes the connection and who doesn't, and which sparks fly in the right direction, and where there's a fire and where there's a misfire, and what God's doing on the inside of people. You don't know. Don't worry about that. You're not going to go up to somebody and say, listen, I know this is a weird question, but just answer yes or no. Have you ever referred to yourself as elect? Just yes or no. I just answer. Like, you're not going to do that. You're just going to preach the word, preach the good news, have courage to stand, and confidence to speak, because you know that God is working on the hearts of his people. You know that God will soften hearts, and if it's that person's time to hear the gospel and you hear the go- and you preach the gospel and they hear it, they will respond. Not because you're so eloquent or you're so cool or you worded it in such a fun little relevant way, but because God has said, now! And he uses people like you and like me to share that good news. When we read about the truth and the tone of the doctrine of, of election in Romans chapter 9, we see someone who has an unceasing anguish for the lost and then a total trust in God for how people are saved and you know throughout 13 letters that Paul has written how he did not cease day or night to preach the gospel to all who hear election gives us courage to evangelize not a reason to sit back courage to evangelize confidence to speak Because God does the work and I just deliver the mail and God writes it. I just give out envelopes. God worries about what's inside. That's his business. I give it out. I give it out. So it's my hope and prayer that that would be the net result, right, of you reading Romans 9. You're not saying, that's not fair. That's not this. That's not that. Of you saying, wow, 
God saves people. And wow, I can tell people. And wow, they'll respond that it's not based solely on me and how I worded it. And was I nice or cute or fun or this or whatever. God will save whom he will. He will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. And we get to go and tell. Father, that's great news. Lord, that you would save us, that you would use us, that you would glorify yourself through the preaching of the gospel, through imperfect people like us. Lord, I pray that you, that you would burden us for the lost. Lord, that we would have anguish in our hearts for our kinsmen according to the flesh. Other Americans, other humans, Lord, that the burden of an unattainable task, telling everybody, uh, would burden us so much that we would see opportunities we didn't see before to speak. Lord, that our hearts would be gripped by the truth of your word, even just sitting at a red light. Lord, sitting at work, sitting in school, remind us, Lord, that they're lost and that you're working in the hearts of your people. And we pray that you would use us to share your truth and that you would be pleased to draw men and women, boys and girls, young and old, unto yourself for your name's sake and your glory. Amen.